I'll never forget the first time that I was asked to be a pastor because I didn't know what that was and I wasn't at all ready. <laughs> you see, I'd, I'd knocked out a year of theology classes. In fact, I'd even had several years of ministry work under my belt, you know, doing some of the things that you'd imagine a pastor would do. You talk about the Bible, you speak to God in public. You know, you make sure the things that are up to you that could have good outcomes arise related to ministry. And you always try not to embarrass Jesus in front of non-Christians. Like, that's what pastors should be doing, right? The basics. But in the summer of 2009, I had just finished a year of seminary. And I was sent to a couple of rural United Methodist congregations just north of here. And about a week in, the pastor informed me that he and his family were headed out of the country for two weeks. They were going to Germany. And I'd be on call to preach my first couple of sermons to those poor people. And if anything went wrong, they'd have my number. That's what he said. You'll preach, you'll do the liturgy, which I didn't know the liturgy. If anything goes wrong, they have your number. We hadn't made it through... Murphy's Law and any of my theology classes yet. So I wasn't really prepared when I got a call on my phone on the 4th of July weekend. It was a 4th of July cookout. I was wearing cutoff jeans and a tank top, as one does at these sorts of things. And I got the call that this octogenarian patriarch, like one of the most important 80-year-olds in this church, had just had a massive heart attack. It, but now he was apparently in stable-ish condition, but he would need a lot of surgeries. It wasn't that he didn't have any family around. Actually, most of the town, most of the church was his family in some way, right? But he needed a pastor at his bedside. It's a shame I was the only one available, <laughs> right? So I spring into action, I meet him over at Duke, and I'm woefully unprepared, right? I offer kind of a series of polite jokes and small talk, anything to lighten the mood. I think, uh, I don't think it, it was conscious, but I think my main goal was to, to distract him from the fact that he might die, you know? It only took a couple of minutes before this parishioner interrupted some comment, probably about the weather or about sparklers or about veggie burgers or something stupid. And he gently grabbed my arm, but he forcefully drew my eyes and he said, Pastor, I don't need you to talk or joke. I simply need you to pray and to be with me. Simple enough. Pray, be present, be with. This is like the most school I got in three years of seminary and like many thousands of dollars. It's just, I don't need you to joke or talk. I need you to pray and I need you to be with me. Do less with greater focus, intensity, trust, and availability. I think like that's boiled down. That's kind of the call of Jesus, right? For all of us. Stop fixing posturing, fighting, faking, and simply be with me. That's what Jesus is calling. That day, more than understanding what it means to be 
a pastor, I started to, to begin to know what it meant to follow Jesus, the one who intercedes for us even now at the right hand of the Father. We sang about it in this like ascended presence, this omnipresence, the one who had been sent by God to be with us, who left his spirit to be our companion even until the end of the age to be with us. I learned at that bedside what it means to sit without anxiety next to someone who had zero control over whether they were gonna live or whether they were gonna die and that that was okay. That I, I needed to just join in that struggle with him and make room for Christ's presence. Like, I think one of the like, most ironic and beautifully poetic things was I'm sitting there in my tank top, so I'm stripped of even the dignity of getting to feel like I'm professional or that I'm prepared. Like, I'm not. I'm just not. The nurses are looking at me like, what is this, you know? And I learned the secret that being with the least of these, and in that minute, that guy was, in some cases, that guy was the most of these in that setting. But in that instance, he was the very least of these. Often the worst situations was a great way to be met by Jesus, being with the least of these. Uh, There's a missionary named Chris Hewitts, and he says, when we allow ourselves to be disarmed, we become both vulnerable and strong. The only weapons then at our disposal are those of the spirit. We choose the way of Jesus laying aside all the earthly resources that give us power in order to be present to those we love. That's what I learned that day. In today's passage from Matthew's gospel comes in a string of parables of the kingdom, specifically parables about judgment. And if we're learning how to be good readers, we understand that these parables are always a way in for Jesus' listeners, a way in for us, a way to let the scandal of the gospel start to mess with the tidy formulations and expectations in in his audience and in our religious and political imaginations. Jesus lights little sticks of dynamite and kind of slips them in to unsettle things that we thought were foundational saying all these how firm a foundation songs. So often we think our foundation is so firm until Jesus decides to shake it. <laughs> he unsettles all these tidy categories about who is part of the kingdom. And I always associate how he talks about this with the surprising and sometimes grotesque ways that a writer like Flannery O'Connor talks about who's in the kingdom. Last week we talked about the gospel being light and being vision. And Jesus and Flannery agree in their stories that to the heart of hearing, you have to shout. And to those almost blind, you have to draw large and startling figures. So Jesus talks about sheep and goats in the kingdom. When the Son of Man, and it's translated in there, and it always sounds very Neo-esque when it's translated the human one, but the Son of Man is that truly human one prophesied by Daniel who would come in glory to rule and he'll act like a shepherd sorting sheep and goats those in his flocks and those who haven't known him to his sheep quote unquote sheep he he basically says 
Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. Here's why. Here are your credentials. You fed the hungry. You gave drink to the thirsty. To the stranger you welcomed, and the stranger is probably the homeless person. You gave them a place to live, to, to lay their head. You gave clothing to the naked. You visited the sick, and, and you visited those in prison. A couple things are in common between those who passed this test and those who didn't is that I think neither group, the sheep nor the goats, knew that there was a test at all happening. <laughs> Isn't that the worst thing when you were in school? And not only was there a pop quiz, but there was like a pop quiz you didn't know was happening while it was happening. And they also had no idea that they ever encountered the king this way in Jesus' story. Both of them. The ones that got it right and the ones that got it wrong said, when did this happen again? When did we do this? When, did, when were you that way and when did we encounter you? And to both he gives the same answer. When you encountered the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you encountered me. If that doesn't haunt you, <laughs> I'm not sure what will. But let me offer a little bit of a framework here into why Jesus might actually be present in this way to us. Why he calls us to that sort of presence, to these sorts of people. First off, he calls us, like he called me in, in summer of 2009, to move along a scale of good motivation and good work towards a more faithful, disarmed, vulnerable presence. Like from, from, do, from merely doing good things to actually being the type of person who can sit with someone who's dying. Sit with someone who is sick. Sit with someone in prison. Be with someone with all of these needs. So I'm borrowing some of the handles for these things from one of my teachers, Sam Wells. He talks about moving from working for. And I think that's a great thing with great allure. I think that's the thing that we're taught in, in school and taught by our parents, that we always want to be working for other people, for their good, for their benefit, for their health, for their well-being. It's a great thing. We do this when we go to the ballot box, and our purest motives might allow us to elect people who will work for the poor, the neglected of our society, those at the margins. The problem often, though, with working for is that it doesn't necessarily require much of us. It doesn't necessarily have to. It doesn't require a whole lot of our presence. Especially in a time that we're living where we have all this technology at our disposal, you can work for someone without ever meeting them, smelling them, hugging them, knowing them, being face to face with them. In fact, sometimes working for someone can, can go drastically wrong because it reinforces relationships of dependency and hierarchies. If it's always the same person giving and always the same person receiving, it doesn't create a whole lot of opportunity to make friends, let alone family. It doesn't create a whole lot of mutual respect or learning. It doesn't create some of those like TNT moments that Jesus often tries to, to create where surprising things happen and explosive things to our imaginations and expectations happen. 
So then we shift from working for to maybe being for. And this, again, these are not bad categories, guys. Like being an advocate for someone, being someone who hopes great things, even hopes all the right things is not a bad thing. In our gospel parable, this would mean being a theoretical proponent for food and drink for all, being someone for affordable housing and accessible clothing for everyone. Maybe you're for health care and prison reform in this parable. Like, imagine that a sheep or a goat, like, I'm for health care reform, right? Again, these are real goods, things we should be unequivocally for. But how much does merely being for them require of us? I'm sure both of these groups were for all of these things, at least hypothetically, but being for can sometimes be far too abstract. And when things become abstract, they can reap dangerous consequences. So then we make this move from, from working for and being for to maybe working with. And good missionaries know about this strategy, that you work with people. You develop cooperation and, and relationship. Tell you what, this takes so much more patience than merely working for someone to work with them. It also requires so much more presence to work with someone. I mean, have you ever tried to bake with a five-year-old? Has anyone ever tried to work with a five-year-old around ingredients? I, I see those hands, right? I mean, sure, I could work for her and probably create a better product in a shorter amount of time with significantly less stress and mess that might be qualitatively and quantitatively better for her. But there's something so real about sharing flour on your hands and shirts in the surrounding kitchen. There's something intangibly better, even if harder to come by, in working with someone. But if working with is your primary mode and motivation when our project is over, and there's not a lot of work to do, nothing between us to help our conversation, or when our project fails, everyone burns something once in a while, right? Then what? When, when you're only working with someone, then what? We've realized just how instrumental our relationship was in the first place. Once the thrill and joy of achievement wears off, then what? So in all these things, like rhetorically, you know the, the right answer is going to be D now, right? You can, put, you can put it up, Marcus. So we've moved along this spectrum, and we find that being with might be some of the answer. And this might actually bother some of you, and it's okay if it does bother some of you. Like that the value of merely showing up, overworking, and getting things done is, is what I'm advocating for here. Is that up there? Cool. On first blush, it seems like some kind of combination of being for and working with might be the answer to like paternalism or uh, working for the quietism of not doing anything altogether or not getting anything done. Even our story seems to have some action component, right? Feeding, clothing, welcoming, visiting, etc. But then I think 
in Matthew 25, if you dig just a little bit deeper, you see that all these actions are a little incomplete. To feed someone is not to ensure that they'll never be hungry again. I mean, we're all humans. <laughs> we get hungry. To merely visit someone in prison isn't to spring them towards freedom. It seems to me that Jesus' expectation is that we'd be immensely on the hook for being with the least of these. Those, even while being freed from the pressure of producing an outcome as if it relied on us. This is what I learned in that hospital room that summer day, because I couldn't do anything to help this guy. I could only pray for him and be with him. This is what I'm learning since, that Jesus meets us in these uncertain spaces of more need than we can handle. And all the while, he shows us our own need and he equips us with all the resources to experience and extend his presence. I think that's what's happening. We find out our need even better when we encounter someone with needs. And when we don't try to fix it, when we sit there long enough and just, just recognize it, and are uncomfortable with it and hate it with the way that God hates that kind of need, then we can be transformed. And I think even the situation can be transformed. This is from Sam Wells about how, how this logic, this being for, working for, being with, working with, has happened in the history of God with his people. It says, God had been for Israel. God had in addition, worked for Israel and sustaining Israel against imperious enemies and impossible odds. And God had worked with Israel through sustaining a covenant relationship that spanned centuries. In some ways, God had already had a being with relationship with Israel. We talked about that several weeks ago in the temple in general, the Ark of the Covenant in particular, but the incarnation of Jesus expressed a being of God with us in a way that while it had always been true for God, was not yet before that moment equally apparent to us. The incarnation marks the moment when God's mode of presence moves definitively from being for us to being with us. So that's my number one reason for being with as, as the winner here is because that's what God does. And we should go and do likewise. This is a radical call towards gentleness, unguardedness, nonviolence, patience, trust. These are things that we don't normally have just stacks of laying around that we're not using, right? So if we're going to go and we're going to do that, we're going to rely on God to give us what we need. This is a massive call for us, and this is really hard, especially for um, young families, because you don't have wide margins to deal with. But this is a massive call towards a bunch of inefficient relationships, <laughs> which we don't have anything to do other than focus on being wholly present to someone else in need with as much expectation for our own transformation as for theirs. Our transformation is bound up in their transformation. It's only, as a mere, it's only a mere chapter later in Matthew's gospel that Jesus receives this lavishly costly gift of this uh, perfume box that, uh, at his feet and his 
disciples are scandalized at all the waste of this. And Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Isn't that a beautiful extension of this logic? When did we do this for you? When did we see you this way? And he says, when you saw the least of these. And then just a chapter later, he says, you won't. You will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. But I I think we actually do, in some sense, have Jesus with us always in these various encounters. We're always going to have the poor. We're always going to have the sick, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, those in prison. We're always going to have a place to meet or be met by Jesus. We mysteriously meet the hungry Jesus who cries, I thirst from the cross as we meet someone asking for food outside a food line. We're met by Jesus, whose pregnant mother and adoptive father had doors slammed on them as they looked for a place to stay when we encounter a a family looking for extended stay because they couldn't pay rent and they're two months behind and they got kicked out. We might meet the holy family there. We might. We might not. We might. (laughs) If you hang out at Goodwill in the clothing racks, you might meet someone will vicariously show you the Jesus whose garments were sold with a game of dice at the foot of the cross, right? Or make your way to to Butner or the lockup downtown and you hear stories that dovetail with Jesus' kangaroo court trial towards his execution for our salvation. It's these encounters that we might find Jesus. It's in these encounters that we might be saved that we might be given the kingdom. Father Greg Boyle, who some of you have seen, he was at Duke this last year, he heads up a really multifaceted ministry of presence amongst gang members in LA called Homeboy Ministries. And he says, I've come to the understanding now that you don't go to the margins to make a difference. You go to the margins of the folks at the margins make you different. That's our, that's our commission there. So I want to close with a poem. I'll ask Marcus to put up the last couple stanzas, um, but to wait till we get there so you don't spoil things. But this poem I, I found this week is a beautiful poem of hardship and presence and hope and healing and hospitality. And it's a sort of, of presence and being with that is so hard to come by and it describes it in such a beautiful way. I hope you guys will be motivated um, and and, uh, encouraged by it. This is by Jan Richardson and the poem is called The Blessing for the World When the World is Ending. A Blessing for When the World is Ending. Look, the world is always ending somewhere. Somewhere the sun has come crashing down Somewhere it has gone completely dark. Somewhere it has ended with the gun, the knife, the fist. Somewhere it has ended with the slam door, the shattered hope. Somewhere it has ended with the utter quiet that follows the news from the phone, the television, the hospital room. Somewhere it has ended with a tenderness that will break your heart. But listen, this blessing means to be anything but morose. It has not come to cause despair. 
It is simply here because there is nothing a blessing is better suited for than an ending. Nothing that cries out more for a blessing than when the world is falling apart. This blessing will not fix you, will not mend you, will not give you false comfort. It will, t it will not talk to you about one door opening when another one closes. It will simply sit itself beside you among the shards and gently turn your face towards the direction from which the light will come, gathering itself about you as the world begins again. And pray with me. And Father, it's this hope that we have for healing and transformation, for light in darkness and a new world forming where this old world is crashing down, cracking and crumbling under the weight of sin and death but you bring about a new world and it's not one that we have to make, not one that we have to bring about on our own timeline or with our own power, but that you've already started and made possible through Jesus so that our call is just to show up and to stay and to listen and to give what we have because that's going to be more than enough and we trust you for it. Lord, help these, these friends and these partners in ministry um, grow in their patience and capacity to just sit amongst the shards in the people's lives that you've already put them with to help us be able to do that with each other. Help us experience you there and even as we expect you there to be surprised and to be excited and to, to be overjoyed and to tell others about how we met you in the face of someone that we we'd never would have expected. We thank you for this good news. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.